This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Welcome to a new year of Policy, Guns and Money. We hope you've had a good break and our hearts go out to any of our listeners who have been impacted by the awful fires. My name is Kelly Smith. I'll be hosting the podcast while regular host Renee is taking a well-earned break. In our first episode of 2020, we examined two of the big events that are impacting the world currently, the US killing of Iranian General Soleimani and the terrible bushfires currently ravaging the country. We've spoken to three experts in the field of disaster and risk preparedness, Dr. Robert Glasser, Mark Croswaller, and Dr. Paul Barnes. We'll start, however, with Aspie's Executive Director, Peter Jennings, as he discusses the tense situation in the Middle East with US Army War College Fellow, Lieutenant Colonel Ned Holt. Well, I'm here talking to Lieutenant Colonel Ned Holt of the US Army War College, a fellow at ASPE for 2019 to 2020. Uh, Ned's a US Army logistics officer with uh, over 16 years experience in the Indo-Pacific, as well as having operational service in the Middle East. And Ned, I'll ask you some questions about that uh, experience as we go on. But we're here today to talk about the uh, tense situation that's emerging in the Middle East between the US and Iran. Uh, that has sort of come to a head over the last few weeks. We've seen the killing of Qasim Soleimani, the notorious commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, the Iranian response, uh, frankly, a rather ineffectual response of a missile strike against two bases in Iraq. And then tragically, just in the last 24 hours, the shooting down of U- a Ukrainian Airlines flight, which was departing Tehran's airport. Ned, quite a few people this week have asked me, are we heading to World War Three? But in fact, the week ended with uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison saying that the situation had stabilised somewhat. So I'm interested in your take. Why, why didn't the events of this week lead to a wider conflict? I believe we haven't gone to a wider conflict. One, both sides have shown immediate, or excuse me, amazing amounts of resolve and restraint. The U.S. military and the U.S. government was prepared to go to the brink of war. However, realized that it was probably not in our best interest for a greater state-on-state conflict with Iran. And Iran also, I believe, thought the same thing too. Both realized that this one was a very serious situation, and we probably didn't need to go any farther. Yes, in fact, it's been a sort of a curious thing where uh, neither side wants to go to war, uh, but neither side wants to be seen to be uh, publicly backing down. Mm-hmm. And uh, that leads to sometimes as much theatre as, uh, as military operations. What's your take, uh, Ned, on the, on the sort of the, uh, the major outcomes of the week and um, what they might mean more broadly? So I think when we look at the long-term outcomes of what could possibly happen here, there's a, there's three negative outcomes and two really very good positive outcomes. I'll, I'll start with the two positive ones. One, I think with the U.S. government assassination of Soleimani, you've taken away some of the operational freedom that Iran has, has used or had in that region for the last 15, 20 years. So I think they're going to be very um, hesitant about making any quick moves in the, in the near future. Also, this has the possibility to bring back Iran to the nuclear uh, tables about nuclear disarmament. I think the long-term strategic negative outcomes would be, you, this is the continued negative trend of interactions between Iran and the U.S. that could just it has the possibility to spiral out of control if we don't have calmer heads. Also, the U.S. has the possibility to lose long-term access to Iraq if we're asked to leave the country. And also, I think the last long-term negative trend we, we could have here or outcome would be the loss of support of the international coalition. And, and also, the, the we're now at a, a pause on the training mission for the Iraqi armed forces. 
Now, Peter, I know that um, the Australian Defense Force has about 300 members currently at uh, the Taji Air Base doing an advise and assist mission. What do you think the long-term outcomes of, of that mission will be? Yeah, that's a good question, Ned. I mean, we've been providing uh, training to different parts of the Iraqi Armed Forces for a number of years now, and the particular focus of this mission has been to uh, train initially um, Iraqi Special Forces, but now a much broader range of Iraqi military and paramilitary uh, on the uh, techniques that were necessary to help Iraq defeat the Islamic State in uh, Mosul, um, uh, particularly in uh, in 2017. And that, and that emerged into a sort of a regular training program, which in fact we were uh, delivering with the New Zealand Defence Force. Now, Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, this week has said that the mission will continue. Um, and I think that's a, a smart thing to do because I think it would be very counterproductive if, uh, if what happened was that we were seen to be withdrawing an operation um, precisely at the time that there is, you know, heightened um, tension in the region um, uh, with Iran. But I think there is a question to ask, and that is to say, well, what is the purpose of this mission? as we're now in a situation where uh, the so-called Islamic State has been materially defeated, at, at least as a group that is occupying and, and controlling territory. So I, I wouldn't be surprised, Ned, if uh, in fact what we see over the course of 2020 is that this is perhaps the, the last rotation of those uh, trainers at, uh, at Camp Taji. Interestingly, I, I read in the um, uh, New York Times that uh, it was at least possible that a couple of those Iranian missiles were aimed at Taji and didn't actually hit their hit their target. Uh, so this might have been a different story for Australia quite, uh, quite significantly. The other thing that is worth uh, mentioning about the Australian presence is that we have um, a frigate which is now en route to uh, the Middle East. Uh, it's going to be calling into Mumbai soon, so it's got a fair way to go before it gets on to station. But this is an Australian commitment to support an international coalition, really meaning the US and the UK, uh, providing protection for shipping going through the Straits of Hormuz in the, in the Persian Gulf region. And if I had to point to you know, a single area where there was likely to be you know, high risk, uh, I think, in coming weeks, it would be in the approaches to the Straits of Hormuz, where you've got Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps operating with fast attack vessels. I suspect feeling that the uh, the book has not really been closed on the Soleimani killing, uh, looking to uh, spread damage through the, the Persian Gulf region. So our, our forces there will be um, on on high alert. Ned, I, I wanted to ask you about your own experience as a, as a US Army officer. Uh, you've had a great deal of um, experience in the Indo-Pacific region, but also to operational postings into the Middle East theatre. Tell us about that. What was it like? What were you doing? And what are your reflections on that experience as you look at the current situation? Oh, thank you very much, Peter, for asking that question. I do have to remind everybody, the, the my opinions are mine, mine only and not the U.S. Army War College or the U.S. government. So I've got three postings to the region, two in the Iraq region. So I was in Iraq and Mosul from 2004 to 2005 as a company-grade officer responsible for the maintenance and supply of a, of a brigade there as we were trying to reconstruct and rebuild Mosul. So our mission initially was a reconstruction mission, then it's kind of morphed into counterterrorism. However, I was a junior officer at the time and I didn't really get the chance to see the big picture. Mm. Um, six years later, I went to Iraq, I'm excuse me, to Afghanistan as an advise and assist officer to help rebuild the, the Afghan commandos. 
and my recent posting was in 2017 when I was a part of the Special Operation Task Force as we were taking out the, the ISIS, the Islamic State. So I was there in almost all of 2017 for the, the fall of Mosul, the fall of Raqqa, and then the destruction of the ISIS Caliphate. So my experience in that region has gone from reconstruction to counterterrorism to, to then almost defeat of a quasi-state. So that, that's my own personal experience. Mm-hmm. And what, what I'm seeing now is a, it's almost a state-on-state conflict between the U.S. and Iran which I think is the more the most destructive and the worst possible of outcomes. That's kind of my experience in that region. That's uh, 2017 must have been a fascinating time to be there because it was the thick of the fighting. And, of course, our own forces were uh, in the advise and assist mode at that stage. Um, there was quite a bit of a debate around advise and assist and a company, and mm-hmm. um, our government didn't quite give our forces the opportunity to do that, but mm-hmm. they were never that far away from those Iraqi special forces units that were going into Mosul at the very end of the uh, conflict. Your experience is also interesting because it kind of tracks the um, the changing role that America has uh, had to perform in the Middle East over those years from counterterrorism now to what looks like a much more traditional state-on-state mm-hmm. uh, type of uh, situation. How do you think this is going to play out going forward? I mean, I, I don't think anyone thinks that this week is the end of potential hostilities. So what would be your advice to people who are watching this with some interest? I mean, what are the things to look for that we should now be tracking carefully? I think it's it's a, we're entering a very dangerous period. Anytime you've got two known, almost hostile nations to each other, and, and the Iran is, a, is an official enemy of the United States government and the US government is an, an enemy of Iran, those two types of adversaries are never very good at modifying or modulating their their uh, interactions. So we need to be very careful as uh, the U.S. military ramps up its presence in the region and also watch out for any possible additional attacks in retaliation for the Soleimani killing. This, it, we are entering a very dangerous period because when you've got two large militaries operating in close proximity to each other, the smallest spark can lead to a greater war, yeah. which brings me on to, um, Peter, just a few days ago, we saw the, the tragic shooting down of the Ukrainian Airlines flight in Tehran. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a really sad way to uh, sort of end what's been a, a difficult few days, so I, I guess. Uh, Ned, um, it it looks pretty clear now that what has happened is that Iranian air defence units uh, shot down a civilian airliner with an NSA-15 anti-aircraft missile system, killing in the order of about 260 people. I've I've observed um, some, some very careful and slightly curious use of language by international leaders on this. Um, Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau of Canada, with a number of significant number of Canadian uh, citizens on the flight, referred to it as an unintentional shoot down. And Scott Morrison uh, today on radio has been talking about this as, quote, not a deliberate act as far as we can determine and a terrible accident. I, I have a sort of a slightly different view about this. Uh, you, you know, I, I think that um, it was probably the case an investigation will ultimately determine this, that it was um, a very definite decision to fire that SA-15 missile and the bringing down of that aircraft is an inevitable consequence of that uh, decision by some air defence commander. Where the error would have um, come into the equation was um, the Iranians probably thought they were shooting down a cruise missile or a combat 
aircraft that was attacking the the capital. Uh, it's not as though someone slipped and you know their elbow pushed a red button which launched this uh, weapon unintentionally. Now I think you know uh, here there's a, a reminder of the Russian um, shooting down of the Malaysian Airlines flight over eastern Ukraine, uh, flight MH17 on the 17th of July 2014. And if you go back even further in history, uh, you can see in 1998, the American warship, the USS Vincennes, shot down an Iranian civil airlines flight, um, thinking that the ship was actually under attack from an Iranian combat aircraft. So these things happen, but I think it's uh, very important for governments to sort of you choose their language carefully between unintended consequences uh, versus outcomes of military decisions, which just happen to be the wrong decisions, which is where I think we've ended up. So on that note, uh, uh, Ned, thanks very much for the opportunity to talk to you. This is our first podcast for 2020. I expect we'll have lots of opportunities to be talking about the Middle East this year. Thanks. Thank you very much. Dr. Robert Glasser is the former head of the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. And as a visiting fellow at ASPE, he wrote the prescient report, Preparing for the Era of Disasters, in March last year. We asked Robert how much has changed since the publication of his report. Robert, your special report, Preparing for the Era of Disasters, has been talked about extensively as the Australian bushfires continue to burn and cause devastation. Could you talk us through the premise of your report? Yes, I'd be happy to. So the motivation for the report was the realisation that, that actually, if you think about Australia's national security in terms of the safety and security of our people and our prosperity, then there is a much bigger threat to our national security than all of the traditional threats we talk about, like cybersecurity or the rise of China and its influence in the region or any one of or the traditional military challenges that, uh, that we see or terrorism. And that is climate change, because when you look at the impacts climate change is having on various hazards, natural hazards, and also the way those hazards can create cascading impacts in Australian society, it becomes really clear that there's a clear and present danger from climate change and a very fundamental threat to our national security. So the, the paper sets out that premise, then summarizes the science of climate change, which suggests we are committed to at least one and a half, probably two degrees of warming, and that there will be very huge impacts that will begin emerging much more rapidly. They're sort of nonlinear changes. And that therefore, when you look at that, what the science says about climate, we, we have a serious challenge ahead. Uh, but then, and this is the point about cascading impacts, that when you look more closely at the science, and as the scientists themselves acknowledge, the assumptions about the impacts are wild underestimates because it's very challenging to incorporate cascading impacts from these hazards that often are have bigger impacts than the proximate impacts. That's um, very confronting to hear that it's an underestimate. Our national security, as you said, often focuses on those traditional threats. But um, can you explain what the threats from these cascading impacts of disasters might look like now, 10 months on um, from publishing your report? Yeah, actually, we're starting to see them now. In the report, I commented on the, uh, the hazards that struck Queensland uh, late last year, or actually the year before last, and then continued into last year, 
where we had simultaneous and consecutive record-setting events from fires to temperatures, record temperatures to massive flooding from Cyclone Owen, uh, and how these these events were often hitting the same communities again and again. I have a colleague from the Queensland Reconstruction Authority who has commented to me that the lion's share of the communities they're supporting, it's the second year in a row they've had to provide disaster relief. And for many of those, it's actually the third year in a row. So we're seeing um, record consecutive simultaneous events. The one million hectares that burned in Queensland was the largest expanse of uh, to burn ever in Queensland's recorded history anyway. We now have this year over 6 million hectares that have burned, also unprecedented, an unprecedented early start to the fire season as a result of these, you know, another impact of climate change. Um, and we have more intense fires, the pyrocumulonimbus, uh, essentially fires creating their own weather, lightning that then triggers more fires, and actually the inability to even do hazard reduction burning because now it's harder to find time when it's cool enough and the conditions are right to actually do those uh, hazard reduction burns to prevent the fires from happening in the first place or to reduce the risk. So, yeah, those are the immediate impacts. And then we're also seeing broader cascading impacts. A good example is the just dreadfully hazardous air quality in, in a lot of capital cities, including Canberra, over weeks now, which have huge health impacts, huge economic impacts because people don't shop, where we have impacts on Australia's tourism and our reputation. And those things are happening simultaneously with other changes that are reinforcing those impacts, like coral bleaching events and the assumption, the science suggesting that all of those all coral reefs and all of the world's oceans, subtropical and tropical oceans, will be gone at two degrees of warming. So these things reinforce each other, and uh, they're quite uh, quite serious. It's it's really fascinating how interlinked everything is, and devastating to see what will. F- follow these bushfires. In your report, you write that communities may manage the first few disasters, but in their weakened state be overwhelmed by those following. Do you think Australia is still at the stage where we're able to manage our disasters, or have we passed that threshold? I think Australians, individual Australians, farm farmers, families, uh, are managing disasters every year and surviving them. What's changing is that the frequency and severity of these hazards and the patterns they're taking are changing really dramatically. So there will be places in Australia that have not had disasters or experienced hazards of this type before, but that will now begin experiencing them, and they may very well be able to manage those. But when we see in these latest bushfire events, and I was actually on the south coast on uh, just above Batemans Bay uh, on New Year's Eve, it was really quite remarkable. But we see with the scale of these hazards now, they are overwhelming our capacity to respond. One of the points I made in the uh, paper was that the Australian Defence Forces, the ADF, needs to actually begin thinking that uh, you know that the old way of managing is not going to be uh, fit for purpose in this new environment, and we're seeing this now with the establishment this year of joint commands, both in New South Wales and Victoria. I think that's the first time that's happened in Australia now with the ADS had to do that. The largest compulsory peacetime call-up of reserves 
in Australia's history and the deployment of really amazing assets, naval vessels, aircraft, helicopters, to support this. So, yeah, what's needed now is an appreciation of the significantly changing scale of the challenge. And that requires a really fundamental rethink on defense force posture, on how the role of the federal government in managing disasters in Australia. The tendency in the past has been to say this is really for the states to deal with, and that will be well seen already. That is now untenable, uh, and it will increasingly become so. So yeah, a lot of really fundamental changes required in how we manage. So, so looking at the changes that are happening and the, the scale of things that are impacting Australia without regard for borders, what are the things that we need to do to prepare ourselves and our country? Well, the, the first thing we need to do is begin addressing more effectively in any way we can, every way we can, the problem of climate change. And that means... They're, they're clearly economic costs, as the government has pointed out, in in uh, a, a more rapid transition to renewables. But the fundamental challenge for us is that if even if we reduce greenhouse gases dramatically, if the rest of the world does not uh, achieve Paris outcomes, Australia will be such so devastated that it is really important for Australia to be advocating globally. Now, in order to do that, Australia itself has to have a credible climate policy, and that, so that's really key. But if we aren't successful on that front, reducing greenhouse gases globally, then all of our efforts to reduce disaster risk from climate change will be overwhelmed by the scale of the hazards climate change is amplifying. So, firstly, that's the most fundamental issue. We have to work as as uh, energetically as possible on that. And there's some reason for optimism. But then maybe just before that, the other thing we need to do is because we're already committed to major disaster risk from climate change, just simply because of the inertia in the climate system, we are committed to one and a half or two degrees of warming. And that will mean more events like the one we're still experiencing in Southeast Australia. We need to really uh, fundamentally look at things like land swaps and not simply rebuilding in hazardous places, but actually moving communities. And that will involve all sorts of trade-offs on private property rights and has huge costs. But the alternative, which is to continue living uh, something like uh, over two and a half million people, Australians, who currently live in areas that are higher extreme risk, at higher extreme risk of bushfire, that in a warming climate is is just a recipe for disaster. So we have to make fundamental changes in our land planning and our zoning that incorporate climate risk, and uh, that will be a fundamental part of the change. In terms of the optimism, well, there are a few reasons for optimism. One, that disasters like this uh, open eyes. People are now, I think, well and truly aware that we are facing a a, a different order of magnitude in the in the threat, and that creates all sorts of opportunities for the sorts of changes that I've mentioned that are required. Secondly, the reduction of greenhouse gases is accelerating rapidly, maybe less so because of, less because of public policies than because of a profit motive, because the costs of renewables are dropping remarkably fast. This is an unprecedentedly fast energy transformation that's underway. Ultimately, 
one of the main reasons for optimism is that that profit motive will accelerate this transition. The price of renewables is dropping, storage technology is improving, and that may end up, uh, I expect it will, result in changes that happen much faster than certainly what governments are talking about in their policy commitments in the Paris Agreement currently. So I think there's reason for optimism, but our climate is now committed to probably one and a half, two degrees of warming, and that means many more hazards amplifying and changing in the severity, the frequency, and their pattern in the years ahead. I appreciate the the cautious optimism. I definitely think that uh, Australia and globally there's a lot less optimism at the moment. Um, so just to conclude, looking at your report 10 months on, are there any changes you would make to the recommendations? I think one of the changes I would make is to call for bipartisan action on climate change. We've had an election now. We have the Morrison government will be with us for years now. And if we're going to make action or take action on climate change. It's going to have to be with the support, at least at government level, of the, of the Morrison government. And they are committed to a number of steps, billions of dollars of investment now in disaster risk reduction and trying to reduce the risk of hazards, climate change is amplifying. It's not, they're not presenting it as climate change policy, but there's a big opportunity on adaptation for bipartisan action. And I, I would have emphasized that more in the paper if I were writing it today. Thank you for joining us, Robert. We really appreciate your time. Uh, if anyone would like to read the report, I can highly recommend it. It's available on our ASPE website. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Mark Croswaller is the former head of the National Resilience Task Force and a former Director General of Emergency Management Australia. Paul Barnes spoke to Mark for his take on the current fires. Mark, an important statement in the national disaster risk reduction work was that a challenge Australia faced is to develop new ways to understand hazard and risk in an uncertain future. How might we do that? And do you think the current catastrophic fires have changed the challenge? Um, certainly, Paul. Look, I think, I think it's fundamental. Our anticipatory capacity for large-scale events, for catastrophic events, um, needs a lot more f focus and attention, I think. We, as a society, tend to step away from anything that looks adverse or painful, uh, and why wouldn't you? Nobody, nobody likes to experience those things, but that, um, that hesitancy to look at the full potentiality um, of an event serves us no good at all when they do, in fact, manifest. I remember the South Coast of New South Wales when I joined the RFS some 35 years ago, uh, the regional manager of the day, Barry Belt, proclaimed the south coast of New South Wales as the most five-prone parts of the world, and people used to scoff at him. Um, but he had been around a long time as a forester, and he understood that landscape. And a lot of people resisted that insight for personal and other reasons, I suppose, but, but he was telling a profound truth, I think. And if you look at what's just happened down on the south coast, it's manifested as a truly catastrophic event. And I think over time when we look into uh, through the inquiry process, I think we'll come to understand that we may have had an opportunity to anticipate more fully the potentiality of that landscape and for whatever reason, for, for a multiplicity of reasons, didn't take that opportunity. Um, I think that's the learning. I don't think there's blame or fault there because I think it's in the nature of the human condition not to go that far. Our risk processes encourage us not to do that because the most catastrophic is usually the rarest. And because of rarity, we trade down the risks uh, to something lesser than extreme. And that then drives our budgetary process and our investments and 
programs and so on and so forth. So I think there's a lot more to learn. So do we have a lack of sophistication or an incomplete approach to the assessment process? I think we have an incomplete approach. I think we have progressed. Uh, There's no doubt about that. If you look at uh, what the RFS has used in terms of fire prediction modelling in its warnings, uh, that didn't exist in 2009, for example. It's now being actively used in public warning campaigns to show people where they think the fire will go. Uh, so, so clearly there's some good indicators there that we're prepared at least during the fire to have a look at the potentiality. I think we have to translate that into the planning schemes and into risk management more broadly and have a look at those potentialities in a far broader context, in an economic context, social context, cultural context, and anticipate the histories that might arise out of those events. In, in other words, anticipate what loss might look like. And that, that is a very rich and deep conversation with community about what's important. Um, I think the challenges there are that often there's this very small number of people in the system, in the bureaucratic and democratic system, that make decisions on behalf of many others and often use their value set to make those decisions. And so I think a more participative approach would be helpful. Do you think um, the way in which our professional training uh, is imparted to our bureaucrats uh, who are going to be in, uh, informing decisions and asking certain questions, do you think we, we can improve elements of our hazard uh, awareness and risk awareness by changing the way in which we professionally train people? Oh, definitely. I think there's always a hesitancy to go to uh, full scale because of the ramifications politically, socially. Uh, when I was Director General, I, my job was to look at the worst case scenario and advise government accordingly. And from time to time, I was accused of uh, being inflammatory or uh, overly provocative about such matters. And I used to say, but I'm paid to do this. I'm paid to brief the government of the day on the full potentiality of any arising circumstance. Surely you would expect me to know about that if I was to advise the Prime Minister or the Cabinet of the Australian Government. That as a philosophical view, applies to anyone in any level of government that has has the obligation to advise a council or a department a secretary or a state government as to what's possible uh, and then make decisions from that point. But often uh, that information doesn't make it all the way through because somebody decides that somebody else doesn't need to know about that. And I think that constraining factor is unfortunate. And I've, seen, I've witnessed it uh, many a time uh, during my career uh, for really no good reason other than perhaps a poor understanding of how politics actually works. No minister wants to be caught out having, having had the opportunity to have known something and not been told about it. And that played out in very practical terms in the Canberra fires with the Chief Minister and the Cabinet when the emergency services of the day did understand the full potentiality and didn't brief it up. Uh, and there's very, there very public comment about that from the government and from... Uh, ministers and the chief minister at the time that 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 the withholding of that information was very unfortunate for the government of the day. So we've got um, evidence in our history of not doing these things and seeing the politi- political ramifications of not doing so. And and I think we need to learn from that. So one of the one of the aspects there is that we worry about the future, but we forget about the past. Yes, the challenge with the past is there are many lessons. If you if you look at the if you reread Hurricane Katrina inquiries from Congress and the Senate, uh, the Victorian bushfires, the Queensland floods, uh, I can say those three because I've just studied them as part of my PhD. Uh, they are rich with lessons still yet to be learnt. There are layers upon layers of implications in those inquiry reports that we didn't discover. 
and I think that we will rediscover them in the inquiry process or the you know the post-incident processes of inquiries after this summer. And so I think uh, it pays us well to go back and have another look. These catastrophic disasters are systemic. They're not one-offs. We tend to look at them as, you know, this is the worst fire season in Australia's history, full stop. That's not actually correct. It's part of an unfolding systemic problem of increasing effects of climate change, which will continue to um, pervade and influence and get worse. So we, we need to look at them systemically, not as single points in time. Mark, one of the companion works of the uh, National Disaster Risk Reduction Framework of the task force was a lot of work on vulnerability assessment. What makes Australia vulnerable? Fundamentally, where and how we place ourselves upon the landscape. Fundamentally, where the forces of nature uh, intersect with society and where society is ill-prepared to cope with those forces. The task force made a very clear statement uh, and published on it that disasters were not natural, that, that hazards were, the hazard events were natural, the disasters were where we on some level had failed to take into account the forces of nature adequately. Uh, that moves straight to economic policy, social policy, uh, cultural uh, implications, um, so on and so forth. So, in other words, it moves it way beyond the traditional emergency management and emergency services problem, which is still where we see these things today. The, the, the narrative in the media right at the moment is these are natural disasters, not much we can do about them, and we need to combat them with more resource and more response, more aircraft, more firefighters. It's true to a point in that it's a manifest hazard. It's turned up in the physical reality, so it needs to be dealt with. It's not true in terms of how to solve the problem. And if we don't go back into a, the, the structure of society economically and socially and where we put ourselves and how we put ourselves in the landscape, this isn't going to get any better. And, and unfortunately, it's somewhat disappointing to not hear that debate at the moment in the public sphere. What should Australia do next? I think it has to develop the courage to look far more critically at the future, a true move towards climate adaptation. There is, at the moment, in, the, in a bureaucratic or uh, public policy sense, no clear signal from any government about adaptation and no clear program investment to back it up. So anything that we're doing towards a changing climate or climate change, depending upon your perspective, is principally derived from efficiency and effectiveness, not from investment, not from step change. That needs to change. So I think the policy signal needs to be clear and unambiguous at all levels of government about the need for adaptation. I, I don't actually know how much more evidence as a country we need to convince ourselves that things are changing. The scientific records on temperature are profound. The events that we're currently experiencing now are also profound. These are now lived experiences that were forecast and foreshadowed some 10, even 20 years ago. I remember in my career uh, not even having to debate these things. They were largely accepted that they were in the future, of course. They were 15 to 20 years down the road, but it was uncontestable. For whatever reason, they're now contestable. But they've, they're manifesting in ways that we had expected. So people talk about... Uh, unprecedented conditions, I, I would argue that is true to a point. It's about 2% of the problem. 98% is quantifiable, knowable, predictable in general terms, not specifically. I can't tell you which house is going to burn down. I can tell you a lot of them will burn. I can tell you that people will probably die. 
uh, can tell you where the fires will probably go because of no one fire paths on the Australian landscape. So, so unprecedented is overused. There are some surprises in uh, what's currently unfolding, but not that many really. So forewarned is forearmed. Forewarned is forearmed, but it must manifest itself into a good public policy, rigorous and unambiguous approaches to adaptation and proper program investment to back it up. Mark Rosler, thank you very much. You're welcome. Dr Paul Barnes heads up the Risk and Resilience Program here at ASPE. I spoke to Paul about the recent calls for a Royal Commission into the fires. We're only midway through summer and we're in the midst of, to borrow your words, a protracted climate catastrophe. Post-bushfire inquiries are seeming inevitable. What prospects are we facing? Well, Kelly, as the PM said yesterday uh, in his announcement, there is an intent within government to carry out a wide-ranging national inquiry, and that includes issues of climate change. The PM went on further to say that it needs to deal with contributing factors, everything from hazard reduction, climate change, through to response issues, coordination issues, uh, and resilience and planning for the future. So in that sense, the the PM seems to be um, setting up an expectation within government, the private sector and and the members of the public in Australia, that there will be a review into a whole range of issues. uh, And there seems to be a slight turnaround in terms of uh, recognising that climate change did contribute or has contributed to the conditions from within which this particular fire season has manifested. Certainly, New South Wales deemed that it will hold a state of uh, a state level inquiry. Although there's some uh, questions from the Rural Fire Service Commissioner about whether he thinks it should be a, a raw commission. But again, one of the, the problems Australia and most uh, economies on the planet that have natural disasters or disasters that come from natural hazards is that the tendency to want to have lessons learnt is more lessons forgotten or lessons overlooked, and. There are many Royal Commissions, there's been many inquiries over the last 10 to 15 years in terms of natural disaster issues in Australia, uh, ranging from 2002 right up to recent times. But one of the critical things about Lessons Forgotten is a report that came out of uh, EMA, or Emergency Management Australia as it was then called, uh, the review of Australia's ability to respond to and recover from catastrophic disasters. That was in 2005. Now, that report is about 120 pages long. It was, it's, it, it's in great detail, it has a very, very broad scope and it is very good value. But it disappeared from sight soon after it was published. Now, people come and go within government, etc. people move on. But one of the critical elements that supports my notion of lessons forgotten and overlooked is that many of the things that will come out in any of the reviews that will happen post this fire season will have been mentioned in 2005 and in other dates in terms of the reports that have been done. So it's a critical thing that attention to detail and attention to lessons are focused when it's an acute post-event time. And then over, to, over, over a period, people seem to forget. So the critical thing will be that we put in place changes that are always remembered and embodied in change that is legislative, procedural and otherwise, because we will, as humans, have a tendency to forget. That's fascinating. There have been precedents for this type of process. Will scale of the disaster influence the nature of the processes? Well, quite frankly, this is the the widest and the, the broadest area of land burnt in Australia's uh, 
recent history. Uh, you know, in terms of prehistory, we don't know. We, we I know the country's always burnt, but um, the reality is worrying about and saying that uh, we've always had bushfires in Australia is a slightly spurious statement. We have to worry about what we have now and move forward with protecting people, land, uh, property and the environment broadly. But there have been precedents. Um, the Black Saturday Royal Commission in Victoria in 2009 is probably the most recent anchor in our memory. 155 days of hearing, evidence from 400 witnesses, and there were 67 recommendations laid down in that particular commission of inquiry. Now, Many of those are still being monitored as of 2016 was the last report that I've seen from the Inspector General Emergency Management Victoria's office. And in fact, there have been some very, very useful recommendations and changes made as a result of uh, the Black Saturday Commission. One of them was the role of the Inspector General Emergency Management. Uh, there's only two bodies in Australia, Victoria and Queensland, that have these particular roles, um, statutory authorities uh, standing outside of government. And the focus triggered by the Black Saturday Royal Commission was to allow a Premier to have a degree of assurance that the emergency and disaster management systems are as effective in prevention, mitigation, response and recovery. So what the Premier's in both Queensland and Victoria now do is that they ask the Inspector General to investigate a whole range of elements across that continuum of pre, during and after. And as statutory authorities, they can ask any question they like. They can go into great detail. So the Royal Commissions are useful. All inquiries are useful. But the extra step that happened in Victoria and Queensland was that there is a statutory authority in those two states that is solely in place to answer the questions of, were we good enough? What can we do that is better? So they don't have the powers of a Royal Commission, but they have a aligned government responsibility to deliver lessons, learn and put them in place. They can direct or that in their reporting uh, they make recommendations. The premiers of the day then and other agencies, other ministers, then have to respond as a government to the recommendations. And the inspector generals then come back and audit the implementation of those recommendations. So there's an ongoing residual capability. That's the best end result of all of these inquiries. Now, only Victoria and Queensland have these particular authorities. Uh, South Australia has a function within their Premier and Cabinet. New South Wales has functions to, to, not to the degree that uh, Queensland and Victoria have in this respect. But I think we may find that after the inquiries within New South Wales, there was again a push towards having their own Inspector General Emergency Management function. So is a Royal Commission the best option? Maybe. That's a capital M, maybe. Royal Commissions can be inquisitorial in, in the sense that they are investigatory, they go looking at uh, allegations of impropriety, mal maladministration, uh, and uh, in some cases where there have been fatalities, obviously there will be a coronial process in parallel to any other investigation. But Australia has had a habit of having lots of Royal Commissions. Uh, in recent years, there haven't been overly many, but it, uh, in the 40s and 50s, or sort of 50s into the 60s, there have been many. So Royal Commissions can be a good option. Uh, there is a, another alternative to the inquisitorial form where you're looking to provide advice, information, research, etc. a softer option. But in this case, I think um, if the states are going to do their own inquiries, that will have to be differentiated 
in terms of the, the terms of reference of a national rural commission. As I said, the commissioner of the Rural Fire Service has shied away from the prospect of a rural commission. Again, as he is saying, and as I've mentioned, there's been many inquiries over the last 10 to 15 years into this type of area. But it may be that uh, the Prime Minister sees that there's no option but to go in to look at some of the broader issues in the depth that we have to. But at the end of the day, we have to also remember that something I think that's been overlooked or at least covered over by, this, by the, uh, the excitement of the problems we have is December 6, Minister Littleproud, the Minister for Emergency Management, announced a House of Representatives Standing Committee inquiry looking into a range of issues to do with past, present and future options for land management, vegetation issues, uh, legislation, the effect of intensity and frequency of bushfires, etc., and subsequent risk mitigation issues and risk management options for protecting property life and the environment. So the government had already put their foot forward into a very, very useful and viable inquiry uh, that had logical terms of reference even before the fire disaster got bigger. So the government, we must give them credit, certainly Minister Littleproud's office has, has been proactive, but the bigger vehicle may be the option the government goes with. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Kelly. That's all for this episode. As always, we're keen to hear from you. You can leave comments on iTunes or tweet us at aspie underscore org. Stay safe and we'll be back in two weeks.